Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. I just have these memories of being in middle school and like writing in my notebook and math class stuff that I wanted to go code. And it's not just like 2D stuff on a screen. It's like you want to really feel like you can teleport to different experiences. And in a lot of ways, the question is just, when is it going to be possible? Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Jeremy Elshan, the editor of MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. You just heard Mark Zuckerberg describe his long-ago middle school dreams for the metaverse, which he's now ready for us all to teleport into. But let's return to reality for just a moment. In the third quarter of last year alone, Facebook made about $28 billion from advertising. What are companies willing to pay that much for? access to your personal data. Things like how old you are, your race, where you spend your time both in the real world and online and maybe eventually in the metaverse. Those data points give advertisers valuable clues about where to target their products. Today we're going to talk about a new idea that challenges how digital advertising works. What if you could sell your data directly to companies who would pay you for that information? There are so many different ways that the web has learned to keep track of you. Ethan Zuckerman teaches public policy communication and information at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Basically, if it's around technology and social change or technology and social issues, I probably work on it to one extent or another. In the old days, we kept track of you based on the IP address, the individual network address associated with your computer. We got much smarter in the days of the web. We put cookies into your web browser. And these are little pieces of information that tells a website, you've seen me before, you've been here before, I know who this is. If you're using your mobile phone while you're out in the world, that data is getting recorded. There is an enormous market for all of this data. Personal data is basically the currency we use to pay for most of the online services we think of as free. Search engines like Google and social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. They're all vying for our attention so they can gather valuable information about who we are and where we're likely to spend our money. There's a really terrific scholar named Shoshana Zuboff, and she coined this term a few years back called surveillance capitalism. And surveillance capitalism is basically the business model of the contemporary web. The idea is that everything is free to use. Now, obviously not everything, right? Occasionally there are websites with paywalls, but most of the services that we use, most of the websites that we go to, don't charge us money for admission. Instead, they do two things. They show us ads specifically targeted to our demographics, and they collect data about our usage that they sell on to other companies. This is the world that we live in. This is the default of how the web works. It's the economics that underlies almost every website that we interact with, and it's become sort of the default business model 
for most sites on the web that make a living off of either content or services. That's the system that brought you those sneakers that keep following you around on the web, even though weeks ago you either bought them or decided you were never going to buy them. It's an annoyance for sure, but while we're wondering why that shoe company won't stop trying to sell us those sneakers, maybe we should wonder how those sneakers are able to follow us all over the internet. It's not just the ad revenue that's worth so much to a platform like Google or Facebook. It's their perceived ability to gather a large volume of very specific data they can sell. The value of a company is highly dependent on how effective a site is at surveilling you. So when, you know, Facebook is out there saying we're going to move everybody into the metaverse, part of what they're saying is we're going to get so much more behavioral data based on what people do in this metaverse space, it's going to be worth even more money going forward. Everybody is representing the data that they're collecting as immensely valuable, but it's very, very hard to determine just how valuable it is. The metaverse, that virtual reality space some people like Mark Zuckerberg say will all be living in soon. In fact, he just renamed Facebook Meta. That's how confident he is that this is the direction we're all going. Some people imagine the metaverse will be like living in a giant video game. Others think it's just marketing spin to create hype. The term actually comes from the dystopian 1992 sci-fi novel Snow Crash. In the metaverse, advertisers may be able to monitor data about how you spend your time and attention in even greater detail than they can already, as well as collect information about your behavior, like who you interact with and how. So there's a little bit of a dream that online advertising has sold for a very long time. Tim Huang was Google's global policy lead on AI and machine learning, and he's now the general counsel at Substack. He's also the author of the book, Subprime Attention Crisis, Advertising and the Time Bomb at the Heart of the Internet. The vision that they've sold to us, which I think has been both bought by people who are boosters of this technology as well as critics of this technology, is that online advertising is like a hyper-precise mind control laser from space, right? Like we find exactly what you want when you want it and we target a message that causes you to buy the product. And that is simply not the case. Huang says when you look at the numbers, that mind control laser is surprisingly ineffective. When the very first banner ads made their appearance on the internet, the click-through rate on those ads was about 50%, right? So one in two people clicked on an ad. That click-through rate is now like 0.03% is the average, right? So we're talking a hundredfold decrease in the effectiveness of these ads. Not only has the percentage of people clicking on ads decreased, but it's not always clear that actual people are seeing them. There's some statistics that suggest that one out of every $3 spent in the online ad economy is just lost to fraud, right? So it looks like you can sell an ad to me, you know, male 25 to 35 living in the Northeast, but when it actually arrives, it goes to a bot, right? Or it's someone being paid to click on an ad. Huang agrees with Zuckerman that it's difficult to avoid the kind of tracking online sites do, but he's not impressed with how accurate those predictions are based on the data they gather. A lot of the internet is designed to collect this data by default. There are sort of things you can do around the margins, but I think it is sort of difficult to kind of evade the collection of data about you online. 
most people can't name the last time they thought an online ad was like relevant to them and like something that they actually wanted. And so we've ended up with the worst of both worlds. We've ended up with an internet which is highly surveillance-based and we don't actually really earn a lot of the benefits. And so I think who's hurt the most is users of the internet. I think we are the impacted most negatively. It's not just a question of not earning the benefits. It's also that it's so difficult to opt out. There has been more regulation on this lately. Europe and California have added laws that require websites to disclose that they're tracking your data. But how many of us actually read and understand what we're agreeing to before we click through? The question remains, if you go browsing at an online store, should that store then own your personal information? Zuckerman tells the story of a woman who decided that while she was pregnant, she didn't want Amazon tracking her purchases. There's a theory if you catch someone during their pregnancy and you start getting their business, then you'll have a customer for life. This led one woman to see if she could avoid letting Amazon know that she was pregnant. And to try to evade being tracked, she did things like buying prepaid Visa cards with cash. In this process of trying to keep her pregnancy status off of Amazon, she got flagged for terrorism. So the steps that she had to take to try to prevent Amazon from knowing she was pregnant are the same sort of steps that you would need to take to try to make illegal money laundering purchases. So that's how common surveillance is in our economy, that trying to really evade Amazon requires the sort of tactics that you would need to conduct a criminal enterprise or to conduct terrorism, and it'll get you flagged in the same way. The power of this is so profound that these algorithms seem to be reading our minds in an eerie way. Yeah, I mean, you know, to the extent that data is being mined and we're not always aware of it, but it's being used to kind of enhance the user experience. So maybe it saves me some time if somebody figures out that I'm in the market for a new dishwasher or new kitchen appliance of some kind, and they kind of steer me in a direction that saves me some time finding that. But sometimes I feel like, you know, they are almost trying to read my mind. And so I found myself not that long ago, actually, just as sort of a test, because I kind of wonder whether some of these devices are just kind of listening. I said to my husband, just jokingly, you know what I really want? I want a red carpet. And I feel like I would pay almost anything for a red carpet right now. And then I just waited to see whether red carpet ads would start popping up on my devices. And did they? They didn't. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't. But you know what? I wouldn't have been surprised if they had. And that's the weird thing. You know, Jeffrey Bezos is probably listening to our podcast and he's about to bombard you with uh, various ads for red carpets. The red carpet treatment is coming your way. I'm actually not interested in a red carpet. Frustration with the tracking-based ad-sponsored system, the surveillance capitalism that built the web we now have, has led to ideas of how to invert the way we're doing things. There are people working to re-architect the internet so that you have control over your data and you can release it to companies on a case-by-case -case basis. Probably the most prominent of this is a project called Solid. And the reason it's so prominent is that Solid was started by Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who you may know from his greatest hits like The Web. 
Sir Timothy Berners-Lee is an English computer scientist best known as the inventor of the World Wide Web. Solid has this idea of pods. You might control your own pod, you might contract with a company that has a fiduciary responsibility to you to run a pod, and your pod would store your data. It would store your address, it might store your credit card data. And then when you interact with a site like Amazon, it would negotiate what that transaction is. Solid basically acts as an intermediary between you and the company that wants your data. Solid would limit the kind of information companies can gather and determine how much you should get paid for it. Some people have proposed another idea, make the store come to you. We should be able to say, hey, I'm looking for something. I want to rent a car in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I want it to be an electric vehicle. And rather than going to all these different vendors and saying, this is who I am, here's my name, here's my IP address, you should just say, hey, vendors, come compete for my business. I shouldn't have to provide my information to all of your different systems to get this to happen. Other models say the platform should be paying you for your data, the data that right now they're collecting for free and then selling on to advertisers. What is information about a user worth? Well, one argument is that you could calculate this by looking at what Facebook's revenue per user is per year. So you can go into Facebook's earning numbers and you can figure out how much money they're making off of each user. You can divide by their 3 billion users and you can figure out, you know, essentially what's the value per year. I know off the top of my head that Facebook's profits were about 35 billion last year. I believe their revenues were around 80 billion. So, you know, maybe the answer is it's 30 bucks per user per year. That might not sound like a huge amount of money, but a lot of people feel if their information is being sold, they should at least get a portion of it. And that's part of the new vision for the internet some people are touting as Web3. Think of it this way. In Web 1, the first iteration of the internet, we could view but not contribute content. It was basically read-only. Web 2 is what we have right now. We can create content, but to share it widely, we need to hand it over to a social media platform. When you post something to Instagram, Instagram collects your data, tracks your behavior, and then targets ads to you. Web 3 envisions a decentralized platform where people can create and control whatever they post or make online. You own your own data and content. Web3 has a lot of evangelists and a lot of detractors, and both sides are equally passionate. Zuckerman explains how Web3 might work for social networks. You have an identity stored on the blockchain that shows that you are part of the people who own that network. And some of those networks are absolutely trying to figure out how to do advertising in a way that people would have a share of it. There are some real concerns about whether the Web3 future is even a good idea. There's lots of things that you can argue about with Web3. Many people argue that the technology doesn't work. Most people, I think, would agree that the technology at this point has terrible environmental problems associated with it. Services that rely on the blockchain, like crypto, NFTs, and potentially future social networks and content hubs, sometimes use an incredible amount of energy to run the giant computers that power them. 
For example, a single Bitcoin transaction uses about the same amount of energy as a US household does in six weeks. But crypto and NFT proponents say there are some alternative methods which use much less energy. What is encouraging is that there is a generation of people looking at Facebook, looking at Twitter and saying, I really hate this world in which a big company tracks me everywhere, sells my data, and I have no control over it. And so I think it's fantastic that people are trying to build alternatives to it. The Web3 blockchain-based alternatives are not my favorite alternatives, but I think the notion of looking for alternatives is worthwhile. Tim Wong says the implications of restructuring Web2 in favor of Web3 come with some serious risks. You have this asset that's losing value over time, and you have people kind of constantly increasing the perceived value of that market. And for me, that spells bubble. And, you know, when I think things come crashing to earth, I think the implications might be pretty severe. Huang says right now the asset, those ads that he says have a click-through rate of 0.03%, is not in line with the multi-billion dollar valuations of the companies relying on that ad revenue borrowing from the world of sort of economic regulation. If you think you're in a bubble, one of the problems with the bubble is that you actually don't want to just pop it because that creates a lot of spillover effects. You really want to kind of let the air out of the bubble as much as possible. One of the things that you worry about with a bubble is that you sort of don't realize it's a bubble until it's too late. Then you have something like 2008 occur. And, you know, I think the nice thing about getting this out in the open is that we can have a conversation about the internet that we want. And I think that's a really healthy conversation to be having because I think it's wrong to believe that, you know, the internet that we've ended up with is the be-all, end-all internet for the rest of time. Adding some kind of regulation to digital advertising, ensuring more transparency, and cutting down on fraud might be a way to stabilize the industry. There is so much fraud and so much ambiguity about what goes on in that market. And so you could imagine, you know, a kind of sort of set of regulations, a little bit like what the SEC does, right? Which says, okay, if you're going to offer these ads, we do want to make sure that the market has clear, grounded information about what it is that you're selling. So it's a little bit wonky, but I actually do think that the sort of market transparency is a really important part of this. Huang says one thing to consider before popping the digital ad bubble is the ventures we might not realize this ad revenue supports. Some of the biggest companies on the web, like Google and Facebook, those two companies are funded by and large through this type of ecosystem. They're typically known as sort of the duopoly in programmatic ads big sections of the internet, like machine learning and AI, like a lot of that research is subsidized through the money that companies like Google get through ads. And Huang points out some of the tools we use for work and school would no longer be accessible to everyone if we weren't paying for them through advertising. A bunch of services that you use every day are free because of ads. In a world in which that economy is not working, we are living in an internet that actually really incentivizes the implementation of paywalls. That has actually really big implications for access to these services. One of the nice things you can say about ads is, look, everybody can get access to the service. But what happens in a world where you suddenly have to pay for search, for instance, or even something as basic as, you know, the, the Google office suite? That has a real big impact between people who can pay for those services and who can't pay for those services. If the ads aren't reaching the buyers they're targeting, could buying data directly from the target improve their outcomes? 
one of the ideas that's floating out there is, okay, well, we have all this inaccurate data. Wouldn't advertisers pay more if they knew it was real accurate data? And what if we compensated consumers for giving us that real data? There are a lot of apps that have tried to do this. Part of the problem, though, is that we're talking about such an enormous ecosystem that wraps up so many parts of your online everyday experience. You know, an app is always going to be a little bit of a drop in the bucket. Coming up after the break, what if you could own your own data? We'll meet some companies who say you can and are figuring out how to do it. Technology can make the world better. At UST, we're building a future where people everywhere are empowered to live better lives. It's transformation you can feel. And you don't have to do it alone. We believe in the power of technology to transform businesses and build a better world. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we talked about how our personal online data is tracked and sold to advertisers and what that means for our day-to-day -day experiences on the internet. Now we're going to meet some entrepreneurs who say we can flip that model on its head. We understood that the consumer was not being considered in the value chain. Walter Harrison is founder and CEO of Tapestry, an analytics company whose goal is to help consumers make money from their data. We're at the very bottom, and we're making these companies so valuable without us using these apps. These companies have no value. So we have the idea of taking data that the consumer's already giving away with all the apps on their phone and all the things in their house and paying them for it. Tapestry is a free app you can download that will track your locations sell the data, and give you a cut. These are all decisions that consumers make that we think are valuable, which you're already giving away, and now we pay you for it. One of the things we say is the average consumer has a ring on their front door, which is owned by Amazon. They have a Nest thermostat owned by Google. They have a Samsung Sony TV that tracks everything they watch. And they have all these apps on their phone, whether it be social media or search apps, that also track them. We live in a world right now where you know, your people are transacting with their home, with their B&B, they're transacting with their car, with Uber. Why not with their data? It's more valuable and we're already be giving it away, so why not? Tapestry will sell your data for you, but they say they won't hold on to it. Of course, at this point, you're all probably wondering, how much can I make from this? The average consumer makes around seven to eight dollars, but we have users with $20 goals, $15 goals as well, and we pay out every single month for that data. Other companies ask people to sell them specific data that the user can choose to share. We spoke to Dana Budzen, who works for the market research company YouGov on a product called Safe. YouGov Safe is a browser extension you can add and then choose to link to various entertainment sites like Netflix, YouTube, Spotify, and some financial services. As you use the extension, you earn rewards, and you can also be paid to complete surveys about what you're viewing online. I think people don't realize the breadth and depth of public data, including Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, but also your financial transactions. There are aggregate data products out there that are looking across every time you swipe your credit card, building things for predicting models that make someone rich somewhere, and you don't get any of it. So 
I think our goal was to give you at least a cut of that while this data trade is happening. Recognizing that it's almost impossible to stop data collection, products like Tapestry and YouGov Safe seem to take a, if you can't beat them, join them approach. So what's the bottom line here? I think Safe, if you were to participate in most of the data sources, they're paying individuals about $50 a year. Then if you add in some of the other survey pieces or some of the other tools that YouGov has, you can probably get anywhere to, you know, 100, 150 bucks if you were really active a year. But what I actually think is nice is that I don't believe in having people spend tons of time doing this. And when you can link your data and kind of go away and maybe spend two minutes a week doing something and then get paid, that's a lot better than having to spend 30 minutes of your time for 25 cents or something like that. So that to me is a product that I think most people can get behind and have the time to do. Another approach to avoid ad tracking, make your own search engine. Brave is a browser that you can download and earn what they call tokens for your search history. Those tokens can be converted to gift cards or crypto, or you can choose to donate them to sites that you like. Hi, my name is Brendan Eich, and I'm the founder and CEO of Brave Software. He's also the inventor of JavaScript, and he was co-founder of the open source software project Mozilla. Ike says the Brave browser rewards you for attention by offering you a 70% share of the advertising revenue it gets from showing you ads. They also block trackers, which they say protects users' privacy and makes their browser faster, and they won't store your data on their servers. We turn on ad blocking and tracking protection by default. We wanted to make something that could be the user platform for a new ecosystem where you can opt into private ads that pay you 70% of the gross revenue, you can then give that back to your favorite creators directly. It's like user sovereignty or control. We're really trying to honestly shift the power back to the consumer. That's Angela Benton, founder and CEO of Streamlytics, a data company that is helping Black consumers monetize their data through their app called Culture. One of the biggest problems is, well, how much is your data actually worth? And a lot of the big tech companies will say, oh, well, your data's not really worth that much because it's just you as an individual. It's only worth a dollar or two dollars. We wanted to make sure that we're building something that is completely ethical. And with our algorithm, we look at stock market performance, market capitalization of these public companies who are actually leveraging your data. Benton says that some Streamlytics users actually think of the app as a part-time job. What's really interesting is people are using the application almost as a way to supplement income. And so when you think about, hey, I need some extra money, maybe I'm going to drive for Uber, or maybe I'm going to you know, deliver groceries on Instacart, people are also thinking about Streamlytics and the money that they can make off of their data in the same way. When we look at the question of who should own your data, it can feel like David and Goliath. Even when we consider these new, smaller companies that want to help you sell your data, how do we control it? Who can we trust? But public policy professor Ethan Zuckerman says what's important is the fact that we are questioning this in the first place. So here's the positive thing to say. Anybody who is questioning the way the internet works right now is doing good work. Anyone who is saying 
the system that we have right now is broken and should be fixed, that is a worthwhile place to start. Obviously, this is a system that needs fixing. And so the people who are building these sorts of systems that let you get paid for your data, at least they are thinking carefully about data and ownership and, you know, how it affects us. So there's not a lot of agreement about how to fix our personal data-driven internet. But as Zuckerman says, at least a lot of people are trying different ways to get at these problems. The future might be Web3, it might be regulation, and it might be some version of too big to fail. Whatever happens, we'll see you in the metaverse. Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a review. As you probably already know, it's the best way for other listeners to discover us. If you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Ethan Zuckerman, Tim Wong, Walter Harrison, Dana Budson, Brendan Ike, and Angela Benton. To learn more about owning your own data, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Jeremy Olshan. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch produced by Best Case Studios. Devin Maverick-Robbins and Suzanne Myers are our producers, and our associate producer is Hannah Leibowitz-Lockard. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer, and the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. This episode was mixed by Katie Ferguson. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.